This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Wine country is often associated with California valleys like Napa or Sonoma. But there's also a lesser-known Connecticut wine country, and it's made up of some 45 licensed farm wineries. And coming up, we hear from two vineyards highlighting the unique flavors of Connecticut. Plus, we'll be previewing the state's Passport to Wine Country program, aimed at helping you plan your visit to any of the 30-plus wineries in the state. But first, here to give us the lay of the land are two experts. We have Leanne Griffin, who's a food and consumer reporter for Hearst, Connecticut, and Alice Firing, who's a journalist, author, and poet who has a newsletter dedicated to natural wine. Thank you both for joining us this morning. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you for having us. And for our listeners, have you explored Connecticut's wine country or used the state's Passport app to find your way? Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Alice, uh, farm vineyards here in Connecticut must use at least 25% of product grown on site in their wines. So I want to start with the broader sort of terminology here. How would you define winemaker, given the spectrum of how wine might be made? Hmm. Well, winemaker is a... You would expect it to be a very simple question, but it's actually quite complicated. It has begun to be complicated. I am more used to the term vigneron, which is used in France. So it's the same person who is making the wine is the same person who's growing the grapes. And in the new world, that seems to have been separated into there's a winemaker and then there's the grape grower. So, and also it's confused with the winemaker. Well, what is, maybe it's the winery owner. So it's not so simple. But to me, a winemaker is the person to actually makes the wine. So it's like, there you go. <laughs> well, we're all about the complicated questions here. <laughs> <laughs> but w- with me, if you give me a simple question, I will turn into a complicated answer. So there and, we go. <laughs> and that's okay. That's how conversations start. And Leanne, I want to ask you, you know, can you detail a little bit more about what makes a farm vineyard unique, especially uh, here in Connecticut? Sure. It appears that the farm farm wineries here are growing, like you said, using 25% of their own estate grapes. They're growing on the premises. They have their own vines. They are sometimes bringing in grapes from other parts of the country to sort of highlight or boost their production. But in almost every case, you're going to get wine, estate wine made on the premises from those grapes in Connecticut. And Alice, you know, when we introduced you earlier, we talked about your newsletter, um, Natural mm-hmm. Wine. You're a proponent of natural wine. Can you tell Indeed. us what that means? You know, what is it? Well, I like to think of it as starting with organic viticulture and then nothing added and nothing taken away in the winemaking process. So there are over 72 perfectly legal additives allowed in winemaking, starting with very basic uh, adding yeast to start fermentation. If you are a strict proponent of natural winemaking, you really wouldn't uh, do any of that except maybe some small amount of sulfites. And it sounds like New England is leading something of a revolution on this front? At least Vermont is. Mm-hmm. And Vermont, it- definitely. It's um, Vermont had one very strong proponent, and then that took uh, very quickly that took Vermont out of the tourist destination to more serious wine drinking. And when did that start? Can you sort of walk us through that? Sure. Um, Started uh, 
about 2010, 2011 with a winemaker, Deidre Heakin, a winemaker and vine grower. Uh, she started to make fermented products for the restaurant that she had with her husband, Caleb Barber in Woodstock, uh, Pane Salute, and very slowly as she started fermenting the grapes that she was growing and the apples that she was growing that trick over into a full-time event and to now where she's really growing most of her own um, grapes, buying in a couple of things, but all local. Uh, but she farms, I think, 11 acres. And that's about a decade ago. So now mm -hmm. it sounds like these wines are gaining a reputation. You know, what has that been like? Gaining a reputation and actually out of Deidre's think tank, there have been a number of people that have gone on to um, make their own wines. And as as one person who has Ellison Estate on Grand Isle, if the best winemaker in Vermont makes wine naturally, you really don't have a choice but to follow suit. And now there's there's not really a huge amount, but there's probably 10 10 people farming, making wine, and these wines are actually landing on some pretty significant wine lists around the country and internationally. When I was going to say revolution starts somewhere, right? Totally. Yes. <laughs> and starts with passion. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. And and as we as we were, you know, looking looking up stories and researching just a topic, you know, we come across this word uh, terroir a lot. Can mm -hmm. you tell us mm -hmm. why is that such an important part of this conversation, especially when we're thinking about all of the microclimates here in New England? Well, I think th there are several kinds of wine. And one is just a wine to drink, and another one is a wine of place that really expresses, you know, much the way an artist would look at a landscape and try to interpret that. A winemaker who is growing their own grapes really will look at that landscape and try to express the soil, the rocks beneath the soil, the climate, and basically that snapshot. So terroir would be, for me, is where the hand, the human hand meets art, science, nature. When I feel like when oh, it's, it's very metaphoric. So you just, no, just I was, run with it. no, I was gonna say I love it because it feels very much like poetry in a bottle what you're just describing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when and you know it when you taste it, and not every wine, not every wine can do that to you. It's it's impossible. So sometimes just a good drink is good enough. <laughs> and we can't think of a better idea than to highlight that here on where we live, and especially as a West Coaster. You know, I'm learning so much more about where I live, and I have to be honest, I was surprised to hear that there's such a huge wine culture uh, here in, in New England and in Connecticut. And so, Leanne, I want to ask you, you know, how would you characterize Connecticut in this context? You know, is agritourism really at the heart of it? And can you tell us what exactly is agritourism? Yeah, I think what is so interesting about Connecticut is that it's such a small state, but there are so many different microclimates within it that do affect the wine. You've got wineries in literally every corner of Connecticut. So you've got the Litchfield Hills wineries who probably deal with colder weather at higher elevations. And then you have wine from wineries down on the coast, kind of taking in the the salt air from Long Island Sound, and that impacts how they're grown too. So really, you're getting very different experiences at every winery in the state. And I think that's, as a, as a 
person who covers food and wine and as a, a consumer who goes to these wineries has been really interesting to me because it's almost like you get to know the state that way. Right. And like I mentioned earlier, I just did not expect to learn more about Connecticut through wine. It was just, it, my mind is still very much boggled by it. And Alice, what would you add to this, you know, about Connecticut's role in this revolution? Well, I will certainly uh, fess up that I have not tasted a Connecticut one in a long time. So I'm not going to actually address that. But Connecticut is in an interesting part be very curious i think we're the first vineyard was something like 1983 of the first commercial vineyard so connecticut has been in this game for quite a while and certainly as a tourist destination and it is very interesting that they're to look at the map and there's so many wineries and so many are in the left north corner the west the northwestern corner of the of the state and the other part sort of like uh, glommed around New Haven. There are such different microclimates, but also there's not only grapes, but there's also a great deal of fruit wineries. And I just kind of love the way Connecticut is bringing in all of these under one umbrella. And I think that's kind of new to the consumer and kind of fun. I think that one of the things that's happening in the wine world is there's a lot of emphasis now on fruit wines and other fermentables. And Connecticut could just glom right onto that, um, which they haven't done yet. But it is really, I think it is quite a strong suit to not just focus on grapes, but fruit, other fruit. Right. Well, you know, revolutions, baby yeah. steps. And it sounds like got to get you on that wine trail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and Leanne, we, we know there's been also a pretty impressive growth of the beer and brewery industry here in Connecticut. But winemaking is agricultural and a little bit more unpredictable, especially you know with climate. How has this group grown in Connecticut, would you say? I've, I think I've probably been experiencing the wine trail close to 15 or more years now and i've seen new ones open in the past five or so years and they've really kind of geared their opening and, and their their grounds toward experiences which i think is really interesting there are some um, aquila's nest is what i'm thinking of in watertown i believe and they have they have tastings with with chocolate and cheese and they have experiences they have seating on the premises with gazebos and pergolas that are sort of specially marked for big groups. And um, I think the newer wineries may be looking toward what maybe younger people want to experience or maybe what they want to do on social media. And I just, I find that um, they're very geared toward bringing in a community and experiences with their offerings. And it's interesting because I, I've heard that too when I was still reporting out in California and the Central Coast where it's also a very big uh, wine country there. And Alice, with what Leanne is saying here about the experience and, and adding mm -hmm. to it and wanting to attract different mm -hmm. people to come, you know, what else would you add where it concerns the growing role of agritourism in winemaking? Well, it is really... I what to say going to wineries wineries are beautiful places they are they're beautiful usually when you're tourist oriented there's going to be as leon said like a full scale of activities of food and wine experiences whether of hanging out uh and 
there's, I know as somebody who spends most of her time in vineyards, I mean, I just think it's awesome that there's so much variety and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a great way to actually go from town to town through the grapevine, uh, experience the land. I don't know how, um, I, I actually, this would be a question for, for Ryan or somebody else is just how much of going into the vineyard is part of the experiences that are, that are offered. And that is certainly something that we will get into later and um, sort of related to that too. You know, Alice, what we've been talking about vineyards here and, and how it's grown, but you know, what are the flavors of New England? You know, how would you describe them and how, how does that change region to region? Well, one thing that New England is going to be really known for, whether it's Connecticut, Maine, Rhode Island, or Connecticut is high acidity. Um, that's one reason that up in Vermont, there are so many sparkling wines that are being offered because that kind of mutes the high acidity a little bit and also makes for really, really refreshing wines. I think that's front and center, the refreshment quality. Um, that's, yeah, oh, really fruity and, and, and like nice, like bright acidity. That's going to be the first one. Sounds very nice for a summer summer season. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and Leanne, how would you describe the flavors of Connecticut? I think it's it's it can be intriguing. I think some of the wines are some of the the grapes that are grown here are certainly geared toward a colder climate. So there are things like Cayuga and grapes that are grown in the Finger Lakes region. Other things that can handle extreme cold. So. I think it depends. A lot of the wines I am familiar with with Connecticut wineries are ones that are hardy grapes that can can handle that cold. Um, sometimes you taste a little more of a, a Chardonnay. You taste more of a sweetness to it. Um, I think high acidity is probably um, accurate from what Alice has said. Um, I there are a lot of lighter reds. Maybe not as many rich Cabernet Sauvignons because that would be a grape that would grow better in a West Coast climate. Um, I think it's, yeah, there's a lot of variety, but I do, I do kind of associate Connecticut with the colder weather grapes. Yeah, I think that people coming to Connecticut and New England who are expecting European-like flavors, even California flavors will be, you know, they've got to widen the perspective. Um, and these are going to be wines of refreshment. Also, while there is some vinifera grown in Connecticut, uh, there's a nice blend of hybrid grapes and depending on what you're used to tasting you may go oh wow that's different so it is an opportunity for really to broaden one sense of of domestic winemaking and what that tastes like and since we're talking about regions and how climate impacts and and thinking about Long Island Sound and the Connecticut River, how does that factor in, Leanne? And, you know, is salinity a flavor picked up towards the coast? I think so. I think I've, I've um, I would say my palate may not be as experienced as Alice's, so she might be able to uh, pick that up on her own. But I do think that I have heard winemakers on the coast say that the salinity and the the winds and the proximity to Long Island Sound does sort of factor into their viticultural area. And, um, you know, I, I would actually be interested to do a taste-by-taste, side-by-side tasting of maybe something made in the Litchfield Hills versus 
a Southeastern Connecticut wine because I'd love to pick that up myself and see. Well, someone needs to get on that. Alice, what's your what's your thought on that? Rivers versus saltwater? <laughs> well, there's uh, with rivers, you're going to have, you know, a, a sort of like a, a warm, actually, I'm actually sorry for studying here. You're going to have a warming effect from being near a body of water. That's going to affect the ripening. And yes, salinity is from salt water is definitely a thing, but I'm not quite sure if you're 15 miles inland, if you're going to get that much of an effect from the salt air. I think you need to be really much closer to, to the water. So when you're talking about, um, let's say the western part of the Loire and Nantes and Muscadet or the coast on Galicia in Spain, you're definitely going to get some salinity there from being near the ocean. It's, def it's definitely undeniable. And it would be very fun to do an inland versus coastal kind of tasting. That does sound like fun. And if it starts appearing on menus, I think uh, we have both of you to thank. <laughs> Alice and there Leanne will be staying with us coming up. We'll hear from two vineyards where we live. And hey, for our listeners, shout out your favorite vineyard. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're exploring Connecticut wine country with food journalist Leanne Griffin and wine expert and author Anne Firing. And joining the conversation to discuss farm vineyard operations around where we live is Ryan Winyarski, who's the owner of Priam Vineyards in Summers, and Patty Rowan, who is the winery manager at Hopkins Vineyard in Warren. Thank you both of you for joining us this morning. Hi. Good morning. And for our listeners, shout out to your favorite vineyard. Call us at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Patty, we want to start with you. We know Hopkins Vineyards is one of, is the oldest uh, family-owned and operated vineyard here in Connecticut. Can you tell us a little bit about the history behind this gem that's located in Litchfield? Absolutely. Uh, yes, we are um 
actually the second oldest winery. Uh, another winery has a spot just by a couple of months, <laughs> um, and we are very proud of our history here. Um, the Hopkins family settled here in 1787, and it started out as a horse and tobacco farm. Um, still to this generation, it, it is still owned by the same family that settled here way back in 1787. Um, it, it's slowly morphed into a dairy farm and remained a dairy farm up until 1979. Uh, Bill Hopkins, um, who still lives on the property, uh, decided in 1979 to take a big risk when no one else is doing it, and he decided he wanted to start growing a vineyard. He was winemaking as a hobby and decided to uh, start making wine, and everyone told him he was kind of maybe a little crazy for thinking that way, uh, but I think he proved everybody wrong um, looking at the wine industry and the, the popularity of wineries in Connecticut today. I think he kind of saw the future. Um, we actually grow 95% of our grapes here, and we're very proud of that. The only wines we don't grow for is uh, fruit wines, and then we have one wine that we outsource the juice for simply because of the popularity of the wine. But we grow 95% of our grapes here, and we have almost 30 acres of vineyard. Uh, uh, so that's a little bit about us and uh, our history, and again, we're very proud of it. Well, and I think winemakers seems to be really intense risk takers as well. So, I mean, congratulations on that history, Patty. That sounds amazing. And and can you describe the region you're in uh, a bit and how that influences the flavors in your wines? We are in the Litchfield Hills. Uh, it's kind of tucked away in, in the middle of the hills. And uh, we, you know, our climate varies a lot here. Right now, it's raining like crazy. And Rain isn't always good for us, so when we see uh, a, a lot of rain, that, that concerns us a little bit. Um, our grapes tend to really excel when it's drier out. Um, but we, you know, we grow more whites than reds here. We do have a couple of reds that we're really known well for, and they're hardy reds. Uh, Cabernet Franc is a hardy red that grows well in this area, as well as uh, Lemberger grape, which is, uh, again, a little more of a hardier red. Uh, we don't do well with any kind of Pinot Noirs or absolutely not with Melos because they just, they just don't grow well in this area. Whites are really our forte. Uh, we, we grow Vidal Blanc. We grow Cayuga. Uh, we have Seval Blanc and Tremonetti, and these are all white grapes that really, really grow well around here. And most of our wines that we are popular and we are, are famous for are whites over the reds. Uh, I was never a red wine drinker. I'm sorry, I was never a white wine drinker before I started coming here. And when I started coming here as a customer, I fell in love with our whites. And that's the way it is with most of the customers. They have a really crisp, clean flavor um, our Chardonnay, for instance, we start it in oak and we finish it in steel. So it has a little bit of that oakiness, but it doesn't, it's not a total flavor of oak. It, the steel kind of gives it a crispness and a little bit of a clean taste at the end. Um, so that, that's kind of uh, what, we're, what we do well here. Our winemaker's been here for 31 years. He not only makes the wine, but he also is responsible for all the growing. So um, he, he really is kind of the bones of our operation here. And um, that's a little bit about um, how, 
how our wines prosper here. And I must echo, you know, I, I also was not a really big wine, white wine uh, drinker, but I certainly appreciate the flavor so much better now just because it, you're, I, it's, it's, you're so right. It's so distinct and it's so different. And Ryan, I want to bring you here. Uh, you and your fiance, Meredith, recently took over Priam Vineyards. Can you tell us about that decision and how this first year or so has gone? Sure. We started, uh, we purchased the property uh, July 1st last year. And it was just more about making a lifestyle change. We just decided during COVID, it was kind of, we were spending too much time inside. We didn't get that uh, joy of life as much as we wanted to. So we took this on as a challenge and decided it was time to make a new life. And here we are. Well, we were just talking about winemakers being uh, risk takers, and you both certainly <laughs> took a huge risk with that decision. And that sounds really, really fun and adventurous. And I want to ask you both this question, but Ryan, you know, how would you describe how would you describe the flavors of Connecticut? We were talking about there's something of a microclimate uh, there in summers, which is a few miles from the Connecticut River. Uh, we're actually in Colchester, but it is not far we have a bunch of rivers around us we're on a hill so there is just a crazy difference to the wines you get everywhere in the state um you know the avas i don't think necessarily match up what connecticut has to offer uh, they're split up into very broad regions and it's kind of just a challenge to get people to understand how different the terroir and the environment impacts the wine and the winemaking and the uh, grapes that come off the property. So it's a very interesting environment everywhere you go. And Patty, can you can you tell us about how you would describe the flavors of Connecticut and and how your environment impacts your wines? You know, I, I, I environment's very similar to I would say the upper state new York region is maybe maybe Oregon, Washington, um, because it does get cold. We we make we do our, our ice wine here. I don't know if you've heard about ice wine, but uh, we do the traditional method that Canada uses. So our, our grapes for our ice wine stay in the vines longer than the rest of the harvest, and they freeze on the vines, and we pick them and freeze and press them on a freezing cold day in January. So that gives us a really delicious and sweet ice wine. And that's an example of the environment up here and what we can do. We're lucky enough that we do have those cold days in the winter where our wines, uh, you know, our grapes do freeze and we're able to produce a really delicious ice wine. That's, a, that's an example of that. But I think the, the flavors that we get here, uh, I, I use crisp and clean a lot because I think the environment up here does give our wine that type of a finish. And that's why uh, the whites taste so delicious. And uh, they, they just have a completely different taste than if you were to go buy a bottle of white wine in a liquor store because the, the environment does give the flavors that type of finish. And, uh, you know, the, the taste is just so delicious and and crisp on your tongue. And um, that's, I think, is due to the growing environment around here. And Ryan, can you give us an example of how you're innovating uh, on an old favorite with new flavors? Yeah, so like with our Chardonnay, we do very similar where we're part on oak, part on steel. So it gives it a very different flavor from what people traditionally buy in 
a package store and they are used to a much bolder, huge um, Chardonnay with a lot of um, oakiness to it. And I find that most people, when they come in, when they say, oh, I hate Chardonnays, we pour them that and they instantly say, wow, I never even expected a Chardonnay to taste like this. And it's a real surprise for them. And we have two other ones, I'd say, like the Riesling and the Gewürztraminer, which um, really we do in a different style. So they're not as sweet, but they have that sweet, refreshing crispness that we're talking about. And that's those are some pretty very different, I'd say, from most of the vineyards that people are used to and what they are used to in the New England area. And can you elaborate on that process? You know, you mentioned changing different styles. Does that mean it's drier because because you're saying, you know, it's not as sweet? So is that sort of part of that process? Yeah. So our winemaker really takes the idea of like people in Connecticut don't always want a very um, dry wine or a very uh, over the top sweetness. So how do we tease that out and make it some of the California flavors and give you that balance between what we create here and the what we what we want people to actually experience, which is a little bit more of a, a full wine, um, something that's a little more California, but less and not so much a sweet wine that people are used to around here. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, but but can you also describe to us, you know, is going to a winery and having that experience, does that change the, ta- the taste you feel um, when, when they're actually physically there at the winery tasting the wines? I would say it does. I mean, it, it's there is something magical about the environment to begin with. So when you're surrounded and you see the vines and you go up to the tasting room and you get to, you know, talk with the people that we have behind the bars and stuff, they really um, help you kind of understand what you're tasting and what you're experiencing. And I think that all that kind of creates a, a, a better understanding and, and it gives us the opportunity to really show you what you can taste and understand your wine better. And so that's the environment we really kind of try to push. Well, that experience certainly helps me appreciate your work so much more, knowing where the where the grapes and the wine came from and how much work goes behind it. And, and I want to bring Alice back to, you know, do you think this approach of highlighting local flavors and doing all the hard farming that requires is becoming more common in this region? Absolutely. And I asked you, like, listening to everybody who was speaking before, I found myself wanting to butt in and talk about it would be really worthwhile to, when you're going to a New England winery, to forget about grape variety because we, until, let's see, until probably the 1990s, we as a drinking population never really used to drink Chardonnay or Pinot Noir. We drank a region. And so, it almost doesn't really matter what grape is growing as long as it expresses 
has something to say for itself. So when you go to Connecticut Winery, just like try to uh, see what, going back to the initial part of this conversation, what does Connecticut taste like? What does this have to express? Because when you're drinking something like Chardonnay, as Brian was saying, well, you know, am I going to make it a little bit California style? What does that mean? What does this mean here in this, in this state? Um, and as people do that more and more, to go back to the question you just asked me, people will be expressing this fine in this place much more than a style. And, and the varietal to me is like one of those things that it, it comes up a lot when people come in. They're like, what's in this? And mm -hmm. you know, we grow St. Croix and Cayuga and Traminat and you know, they know some of these varietals, but they don't know perhaps what the St. Croix tastes like. Right. And then when they try it, they say, oh, my gosh, it's kind of like uh, this one or it's kind of like that. And that's sometimes our biggest challenge mm -hmm. is getting people over that. I want a Pinot Noir. I want to. Yeah. What do you it's have? Kind of, it's kind of funny. This was started. I what used to be called the fighting varietals as a way to get consumers to drink to drink because they could actually pin it on a great name. But now it really is an impediment to exploration is people think that wine only comes in like four colors or four varieties. That is so interesting because I, I feel like every time I'm in a different region and if I do wine tasting, I have a completely different experience. I, I do try not to pin it, but certainly, right. I'm, you know, it's, it's very easy to to think that, oh, it's only supposed to taste a certain way and and whatnot. And Leanne, I would love also to ask you, you know, your thoughts on this conversation. You know, do you think the experience uh, changes the way you taste? Yeah, I think so. I think you feel more connected to the wine when you're there. I think you can taste anything from a liquor store, maybe not know the history behind it. But when you're at the winery and you see them, you know, if you're a certain time of year, you see them harvesting, you see them doing the work, you see them out in the vines, you understand just how much work goes into it and how much passion these winemakers have. And to somebody's point earlier about Chardonnay, you know, I've been with friends who have said, I hate an oaky Chardonnay, I hate that buttery flavor. And then somebody has a stainless steel aged Chardonnay, and then they changes their whole perspective. And I think the different types of grapes that are grown in the cold weather in Connecticut are maybe not as well known as some of the mass marketed wines from California and the larger wine markets. So you really do get a learning experience when you do go to these wineries and try new things and sample. So bring a notepad and, and pens is what you're saying, right? <laughs> when you're going to these tastings. Or at least uh, snap a shot of the bottle. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the best way to remember. <laughs> there you go. And and Ryan, you know, with uh, Priam Vineyards in Colchester is a destination for events and weddings, including your own. Can you talk about that sort of increasing importance of agritourism? Yeah. I mean, booking events for us is is kind of helps us grow the winery in general. So the more weddings, the more corporate events, the more holiday events that we have, it allows us to basically put more into it, whether it's buying more tanks, buying more varietals, expanding the vineyards and just building it. And Patty, we know both Hopkins and Priam Vineyards are stops on the state's passport to a wine country program, which we'll be talking about with the Commissioner of Agricultural, uh, Agriculture in a little bit. What are your thoughts about agritourism? 
Uh, I think it's uh, really important to the state, and it's really important to our customers. Uh, the the wine, Connecticut Wine Trail Passport, for instance, is uh, is something that our customers love to do. Uh, they take it very seriously, visiting the wineries and making sure they get their stamp and uh, having a little piece of the winery to take along with them when they leave. Uh, and it's what's really great about the the tourism aspect and the passport, which is the biggest part of that. And not only that, but, uh, you know, just, just when people come to Connecticut, how surprised they are by how many wineries there are in the state of Connecticut. Um, every winery just has its own little story. Uh, it's so important to visit them all. Um, you know, we were a farm before we became a winery. And when you come to our winery, we have that farm. We still have that we're in a barn, and we have that farm aspect, and you can actually look and see where the where we had cows when it was a dairy farm, and the property outside is beautiful. And I know that some of the other vineyards that are newer are starting to to make their uh, their little stamp in Connecticut, so to speak, uh, by building their their story and 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 having their own little reason why the customers should come and visit their winery um, and what it is that makes them special. There's something special about all of us, and we all have a different story, so to speak. Um, So um, I think it's important when people visit the state of Connecticut that one of the the really first things they do is visit the many wineries in Connecticut and, and see what we're all about and get the experience of the winery and the past and the present as well. Well, I really love this idea of special stories all bottled up in wines. And, and Patty, we know farmers in the state have also dealt with the shifting climate patterns. And what has your experience been like in the, in the last few years? You know, um, again, you know, it's it, we've been pretty lucky. Uh, uh, there were uh, so it was about five years ago that um, we had a lot of rain, and unfortunately, most of our Cabernet Franc grapes were not able to be harvested, and that that was something that you know we had to deal with, and we had very little uh, Cabernet Franc that year, which upset people greatly because it's one of our most popular reds. Um, a couple of months back, we had the frost and. You know, we had that frost at the oddest time, and we did, um, unfortunately, have some damage done to our Vidal Blanc grapes because of that frost. I think the biggest thing that we have to deal with here is the wildlife. Uh, Last year, uh, before we were ready to harvest our grapes for our ice wine, a mom bear and her three cubs decided they were going to take down our nets and eat all of our grapes, and they... They literally left us with nothing. Uh, so ice wine is kind of a rarity these days, and uh, we don't have a lot of it because of that particular incident. Uh, so, uh, th- you know, that, that's another thing. I mean, we always talk about the weather, and, yes, the weather is absolutely impactful on what happens here, but the wildlife can hurt us a little bit too. We love all the wildlife that, life that we have around here, but it does sometimes um, – kind of take us by surprise. Well, and you just took the words out of my mouth. I think it's a it's an adorable but very 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 frustra- uh, frustrating problem, obviously. And and you're right. We we do tend to talk about the weather, but I, I, to be honest, I didn't really think about wildlife until you mentioned it just now. And Ryan, is this a big part of the 
uh, this is a big part of the agritourism conversation in some way. You know, are you seeing are you seeing um, any experiences with climate change and wildlife, knowing that you only have a year in? Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to compare to other regions of the you know country. Uh, for instance, like in Texas or California, you really have like a steady climate and things aren't really up and down. So obviously you have less of an impact but on grape growing. But here, obviously, the rain and the, that, that hurts us both in an, a, a tourist destination because a lot of our uh, estate is outside. And so people come to actually enjoy the outside. Um, and that that rain both hurts us kind of from the grape growing process, but also from the um, tourism spot. And then um, as far as wildlife, yes, that's always a challenge between the deer and the birds. They can do a number on you very quickly. And if you're not timely with your nets and timely with your um, uh, repelling of the animals, then you can lose quite a bit very quickly. Repelling of the animals is a new phrase I'm going to try to use in my daily life. Thank you so much for that, Ryan. You've been listening to Ryan Winyarski with Priam Vineyards. Thank you so much for being with us today. And Patty Rowan, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. You've also been hearing from Alice Firing and Leanne Griffin, who will also be staying with us. We'll also be talking with the State Commissioner of Agriculture after a quick break, who helps oversee the Passport to Wine Country program that we've been talking about. And let us know if you use the app or if you've joined the program. You can give us a call, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're taking a tour through Connecticut wine country, which you can do too, with help from the state's Passport to Wine Country program. You can find out more at ctwinecountry.com. And here to discuss is Commissioner Brian Herbert with the Connecticut Department of Agriculture. Thank you so much, Commissioner, for being on the show today. Good morning. Thank you for having me and thank you for dedicating your time to this important topic. Of course. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Commissioner, can you tell us about this program? You know, when did it get started? And it seems like it's very, very popular. It, it is. The, the uh, Passport to Connecticut Wine Country has been around for over a decade um, and it seems to be growing with more popularity. People really look forward to the opportunity to get out, visit Connecticut farm wineries, um, to participate. As some of your um, previous guests were mentioning, you know, it's not just about tasting the wine, it's about experiencing the location of the farm and the people who are there who are making the wine. 
Um, this year we have 38 uh, different participating farm wineries in all sections of the state. Um, and it's a map. So it's, it's very similar to, uh, you know, the, the uh, craft brewers uh, app. And so you can download it on your phone, register for free. Um, you click a picture where you're, um, when you stop in at the uh, different farm wineries. Um, and then at the end of the year, you're eligible for a whole bunch of prizes. We have $10,000 worth of prizes uh, to give away uh, to participants. Well, sounds like we all need to get hydrated in a different way this <laughs> summer. And, you know, you've been listening to the conversation and we spoke a lot about mm-hmm. the increasing importance of agritourism, um, especially mm-hmm. as our farms in our state, you know, face increasing unpredict- uh, unpredictability from floods to drought to early frost. And we're, we just heard wildlife as well. You know, what are your yeah. thoughts about sort of this new direction, if you will? Well, I think this is where um, it becomes really important that we work with our uh, institutions of higher education um, and uh, academic uh, partners. You know, the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station and, and the University of Connecticut College of Ag Health Natural Resources Extension Services um, to make sure that we've got the right varieties um, that are being planted to meet this changing climate um, and to help uh, the farmers understand how to care for those new varieties and those crops um, so that they are a little bit more weather tolerant. Uh, we also have released um, uh, our Climate Smart Agriculture and Forestry Grant programs to help people um, transition between, um, you know, our, our traditional practices um, and one where the the future of our uh, our weather is not as certain. As you mentioned, this year we've had two late frosts. We had a, a almost a drought in June, um, and then we had floods in July. Um, so that makes it very difficult for um, for farmers to manage their crops. And as Ryan was mentioning, and as uh, Kathleen was mentioning, um, bears are becoming a problem. You know, you've got deer and birds, which we've been able to manage, uh, uh, but bears are increasingly becoming an issue um, in these, you know, open spaces. And that just it, that continues to surprise me and shock me just because I don't really think about bears wandering around town, but they are now. So clearly mm-hmm. they're going to want to go and get some grapes at these vineyards. And we've also yeah. been talking about the importance of highlighting local flavors instead of importing mm-hmm. grapes to sort of match what what consumers might be used to or, or what they might want. And that is on the rise. So is this something that the Department of Agriculture is excited about? Absolutely. Um, you know, when you go to a farmer's market, um, you, at least I do, I think a lot of people do try to pick up something different, you know, something that they haven't seen or tried before, prepared before. Um, and I think that's uh, something similar that we could do with Connecticut wineries is, you know, have an open mind when you go there. It, it may not look like, um, you know, the, the liquor store selection of wines, um, but there's some really interesting flavors or some really interesting winemakers out there. Um, and then when you think about, you know, how you can pair that with what else we have in Connecticut, I mean, how about a nice crisp white wine with a Connecticut oyster um, or some Connecticut cheeses um, and really, you know, uh, amp up the entire uh, Connecticut Agritours um, uh, experience. And Leanne, I want to bring you back to the conversation real quick. You know, we know you visited uh, several stops on the trail that we're talking about. You know, what was your experience like? I think it's it's a great way to learn the state. I think I, I have, I live up in the north, north central part of the state. I have friends that live in Western Massachusetts. They have kind of experienced the state through the travels. We did day trips and we'll go to a cluster of them in a certain section of the state. And I think 
it's a great way to open people's eyes to what Connecticut has to offer overall. I think, as Commissioner said, um, Priam is right down the street from Cato Corner Farm in, in Colchester. And so that's a phenomenal cheesemaker. So you can go down the street and you can buy cheese from them and then bring it over to Priam. And, you know, you just experience all of that together. I think there is so much to offer with Connecticut agriculture. And I think that is a good way to explore it eye-opening and flavor palette opening, I imagine. And Alice, real quick, we got about a minute left here, but you've been with us this whole hour. We, I would love to ask you, you know, any final thoughts? Oh, so many. One is that I absolutely adore Cato Farms cheese, <laughs> by the way. And I think that when people go, and it is a wonderful way to learn the state, to go from winery to winery, but Instead of just focusing on the bottle, I know it's going to sound crazy, but milk comes from the cow and uh, wine comes from the vineyard. Ask questions. Ask questions about viticulture. Ask questions about what are the challenges of growing here. All those questions actually help you understand what you're tasting and the story behind. And yes, going to that vineyard if you like the wine, it really, it connects an emotional experience to what you're drinking and it helps you remember the flavors. And it's, uh, tourism through the glass is just um, probably one of the best ever. Tourism through the glass, that sounds really enticing. And now I'm getting really excited to visit my my next local winery. So thank you so much. You've been listening to a wine expert and writer, Alice Firing and Leanne Griffin with Hearst, Connecticut. Thank you both for being with us and also the Department of Agriculture Commissioner, Brian Herbert. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.